KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. This week on Roundtable, we're taking a look at some of KPBS's border reporting in 2023, including the story of Tijuana's ongoing growth and change. It's a vibrant city of almost two million people at this point. It's bigger than, than, than San Diego, and there is a lot of there's a lot happening over there that I think gets overlooked. And we'll learn about the year of craft beer in San Diego, as the industry saw some closures in 2023. Craft beer's always been pretty cyclical, but that's where we're at right now. And so uh, we're on the downswing, but that doesn't mean there's not a ton of quality beer. And that's always the good part. Plus, stick around. There's some news for Roundtable listeners. Don't go anywhere. Roundtable is coming up next. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. The San Diego-Tijuana border region saw some major changes in 2023. Pandemic-era border restrictions were lifted. Also, a continued increase in migration led to a strain on border resources, leaving many asylum seekers and migrants in need of shelter. Meanwhile, Tijuana saw higher rents and more growth, but along with that came some infrastructure challenges. Joining us to talk about some of the year's top stories along the border is Gustavo Solis. He is KPBS's investigative border reporter and a regular guest here on Roundtable. Gustavo, welcome back. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Great to have you here back with us. So let's start over in Hakumba Hot Springs. It's a small desert community, and it's been seeing some migrant encampments there over the past several months. It's even made national news, as we know that there's aid groups out there and others who are raising some concerns about the treatment of migrants by federal immigration officials. And there's actually some news on this this week, a civil rights investigation going on now. I mean, what exactly do we know there? Yeah, well, this is the first time we have confirmation from the Department of Homeland Security, that they are looking into this, they are investigating this. They sent uh, multiple investigators down to the encampments to talk to migrants, to talk to humanitarian workers, and to Customs Border Protection officials. Mm -hmm. Timing is, I mean, these encampments have been going on for a long, long time, right? They started as early as October 2022. CBP has used them on and off throughout this last year, but they've really been used in full force since uh, September. And when we say encampments, these are like outdoor, very informal, right? Like they're, they're being told to wait out in the open, essentially. Oh, yeah. They're, they're basically out there in the wilderness, right? No shelter. At the one in uh, San Isidro, they had 
at one point one porta potty for like four hundred people. Um, the folks who are there, uh, you see a lot of women and children, pregnant women, young young children. Uh, in terms of food, they get very little food from Border Patrol. Uh, more than ninety percent of the food and water comes from volunteer organizations who have been over there. In some cases, out in Hakumba, uh, building tents uh, for them because there is no shelter. Uh, and especially this time of year is a big, big issue because, you know, there's going to be a lot of rain this weekend. It's getting really, really cold out there right now. In October, in the San Isidro encampment, a woman died shortly after arriving there. So there's been a lot of concerns for the last several months, and advocates have been raising issues. So in one sense, it's great that the investigation is happening and hopefully it leads to to some better conditions for the folks on the ground. But on the other sense... Why did it take so long? Mm. And it's a federal investigation, right? Do we know what they're looking what they're looking for here? We don't know much. They send us one email statement confirming more or less what what they were looking for. It is the uh, Department of Homeland Security's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, and they essentially just said they're looking into concerns of potential civil rights abuses. And we know that these migrants, they began arriving over in Hakumba this past spring, and that coincided with an increase in migration along the U.S.-Mexico border, something people are familiar with. But Gustavo, how has migration changed over the course of just the last year? Oh, I mean, significantly. And and we knew it was going to change after the Title uh, 42 restrictions. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, I'm sure. But there's been, and not just this last year, but the last couple of years, and we've talked about it in Roundtable before, there's this historic shift in the kind of migration mm. we're seeing in the U.S., where in the 90s it was mostly Mexican men uh, looking for work. Uh, then it became Mexican men and Central American men looking for work. Uh, then in the 2010s, it, we had a bunch of uh, unaccompanied children, and it became more Central American families. Uh, but now it's everyone. I mean, there are people from Turkey, Uzbekistan, uh, Ghana, uh, Guinea, uh, Ecuador, uh, China, like people from all over the world at our, at our border, and not just men looking for work, entire families um, fleeing for their lives. So it's changing the nationality, the age, and just the, the population group that we're seeing. And, and that is the first time we've seen this in the southern border really ever. And I think you said fleeing violence in there because many of these people are claiming asylum, right? And even though when they come to San Diego, like a lot of these, I think you said this before, a lot of the people don't end up staying here, right? Like we see these numbers about, you know, 40,000 migrants dropped off in the last X number of weeks, um, but they end up traditionally moving on somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. San Diego has never been a destination point in the same way that Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, or Miami are. Uh, San Diego is in many aspects just another part of the journey, right? Their first kind of step into the U.S., and from here they go to their final destination. So we have seen the continuation of that, right? A lot of the shelters from you know Jewish Family Services and then Catholic Charities, they'll say that the average length of stay is something like 1.2, 1.8 days, right? Just enough time to get in contact with your sponsor, your relative, and then by a plane or bus ticket home. And maybe something else that's changed this year, too, is we've seen more action and funding coming from the county, right, in terms of welcoming these migrants or helping them get to that next destination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the funding it has been a, a bit of an issue. And and even, like, 
the source of it is, is kind of a little bit questionable, right? Because we say it's coming from the county, and it is being allocated from the county, but it's money that the federal government gave to San Diego County. And that's been a really interesting development in the last couple of months, just really city and county officials saying, hey, the federal government needs to do more money. And then the federal government saying like, hey, you're using our money to pay for what you're doing. And it's this big, and it's causing tension. You know, I was at a press conference where uh, Congressman Vargas went after County Supervisor Nora Vargas. You know, who's paying, who's not paying for it. It is really causing a lot of tension. And I think part of the part of where the frustration is coming from, I think everyone on the local level understands that the federal government should be paying for this. The federal government should be in charge of this because, you know, they, they're the ones that dictate and enforce immigration policy. And at least just the Democratic-Republican split in San Diego County, I think a lot of rep- Republicans would, would probably say, we shouldn't pay for it. The federal government should pay for it. Whereas Democrats would be saying, like, well, we agree with you. The federal government should be paying for it. But they're not. And if they're not, then it kind of falls on us because otherwise nothing would get done. Mm, yeah. And we've also seen the county put up some money for like legal aid for people that are going through the immigration process, which can be very complicated. But all right, let's jump into Title 42. You alluded to it a little bit earlier. This was the controversial policy that was basically a public health restriction that was put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. And basically it allowed federal immigration officials to quickly turn migrants away without like a super defined reason in the name of public health. And we know that that went away in May. But looking back on Title 42, it seems like it was a big game changer for the border. I mean, what comes to mind for you today when you think about what that policy is or maybe what it did? I think there's there's just a lot to unpack with Title 42, um, especially looking into just the future of this country and, and with former President Trump running for office and wanting to bring it back. And even there being some appetite on democratic circles to bring back a similar policy. In terms of what happened on the border, I think it it hit a lot of what was going on and it kind of made some of the border crises uh, out of sight, out of mind. What it essentially did is that it shut down the majority of asylum legal entry into the country for years. And what that does is that it creates a backlog. It creates pent-up demand. So for years, you had a group of, you had hundreds of thousands of migrants who were just waiting in Mexico around the border for a chance to do what they've always been able to do, right? Present themselves at a legal port of entry, request asylum, not necessarily get it, but at least go through the legal court process to see if they get it or not. With Title 42, that was all shut down. So you saw a big increase in apprehensions, people who crossed the border illegally, but got turned around and got sent back to Mexico. And they would just cross over and over and over again. That's why those numbers were so high. They were historically high. And a lot of it was because of repeat Folks, I talked to some. I talked to a guy who crossed twelve times hmm. in like a week. Right. You know, and, and, and it almost seemed like too, because you've talked about on the show many times before how there hasn't been comprehensive immigration reform, uh, and then we know the pandemic hit, and then this was implemented, and um, but then as it went on longer and longer and longer, it seemed like it was almost kind of like a crutch for like not having immigration reform, like mm-hmm. a new kind of policy almost. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it's been. Like, DACA is a similar program that, that's sort of become a crutch. Title 42. Deferred was. action for childhood arrivals. Yeah. Right. So, so there, I mean, immigration policy since the 90s has just been executive orders and uh, legal challenges are, are what make it. It hasn't really been fundamentally changed mm-hmm. in a while. And, and with Title 42, when it was lifted, the idea was that 
um, well, there were two schools of thought. One was that we had a bunch of pent-up demand on the Mexican side, so we would see a, uh, an increase in numbers, but then it would kind of flatten out after that pent-up demand was already met. The other school of thought was that it would just unleash, you know, open the floodgates, essentially, if you will, and have more migration. Um, I think it's too early to tell which one is happening because there, there's a lot of play out here, right? There, there are really uh, significant just global events happening that, is, that are pushing migration, a political unrest, uh, wars in multiple parts of the country, uh, famine connected to global warming. Uh, in Latin America, the, the spread of criminal gangs that, that make life untenable in some of those places. Those are all push factors that are bringing people to the border that are independent of Title 42. Um, so it's very, and that's the thing about covering migration and even look, looking at this topic. There are so many factors at play that it's very difficult to pinpoint to one policy or one incident as a reason for everything. Right. No, totally. But to all these policies, there is like a human aspect to this. So like there's a human impact. And I think a, a series of stories that you did that really showed that was the record number of border fall injuries. And I think you said that there was like 360s just from San Diego's border wall. And in your reporting, you spoke with UC San Diego Health's Dr. Alexander Tenorio. And here's some of what he told you. And I started noticing all these uh, brain and spinal cord injuries from migrants um, coming in. And the reason it stuck with me is because my parents, you know, they're, they're uh, immigrants. They cross the same border. So that was very personal to me. So I started just looking into it. So, Gustavo, why are we seeing not only more injuries from the border wall, but, you know, more serious injuries uh, here in San Diego? Yeah, I mean, that goes back to 2019 when we started replacing the existing border wall with a taller border wall. Uh, this was Trump's big, beautiful wall that Mexico would pay for, but it, we ended up paying for it. Um, and it that is one part of this whole, you know, immigration uh, complex immigration story that you can point to one thing that made a big difference, and the size of the wall is it. Um, it and, and you can see the numbers jump from 2019 to 2020, 2021, 2022. It was just a big spike. And you mentioned we had a record year. This is the third record year in a row. It's been record after record after record, and nothing's really being done about it. Now, the reason why injuries are not just uh, more frequent but also more severe is because you're falling from a taller distance. And in terms of like, we know that, you know, Trump's border wall you were just mentioning there, but Biden has continued building that here in San Diego, right? The same border wall that Trump started. Oh, he's building it right now. Yeah, I saw. I actually saw it on Monday when I went to do a separate story about art along the border. Was that down at Friendship Park? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was down at Friendship Park. And it, it's been, that's one of the big things that Biden has been getting criticized for uh, on the left because he very publicly said he would not build another foot of wall. Hmm. And here we are seeing it every day in San Diego that he's doing exactly that. And moving south of the border here for a minute, another story you had covered was the growth of Tijuana and that city there. But there's also been some challenges that have come along with that and the modernization. You've reported on San Diego's high housing costs that are contributing to rising rents in Tijuana as well. I mean, generally, when you look at Tijuana, what have you seen over the last year there? Incredible amount of growth. I think the Tijuana skyline is changing before our very eyes. You're seeing skyscrapers go up. Um, that's just on the residential side. On the commercial side, there is a vacancy rate of less than 1% when it comes to commercial wow. um, 
property over there. So it's booming and it's been booming for a long time. But but as as you mentioned, you know, when you were framing the question, that growth isn't being done in a in a very smart way. I mm-hmm. talked to an expert in Tijuana who just says uh, city planning doesn't exist in Tijuana. The permitting, I remember from your story. And all yeah. That, yeah, and and what he what kind of has struck me was he'll say like even if Tijuana does a city planning process, it takes a couple of years to come up with a city plan. And the city is growing so fast that even if Tijuana does, you know, spend a couple of years to come up with the plan, the city's already outgrown that plan. Uh, it, it's just incredible rate of growth that is really exhausting the infrastructure, and you see it in all walks of life. Uh, the most obvious is traffic in the city, going out of the city into San Diego, going into the city, into Tijuana, but also just on the sewage issue has gotten way worse to the point where Imperial Beach and Coronado are routinely closed, and a lot of that does fall on lack of infrastructure in Tijuana. Mm, yeah, we know that there's supposed to be uh, some money going there to eventually fix that issue. Um, but Gustavo, as we wrap up here, uh, we've covered some of it, but certainly not all of it here. I mean, are there any other stories that stand out to you from this year along the border? I mean, Ped West comes to mind, the roller coaster of the closures there. Um, but one on a lighter note um, that I remember from you was, uh, you know, the, the Tijuana Little League team making it all the way to the Little League World Series. But uh, uh, yeah, any other stories that, that stand out to you? Well, I think that Tijuana Little League story was really, really awesome. The whole city, really the whole country of Mexico backed that team. And a lot of folks in San Diego were also cheering for them. And I think stories like that, I think we should do more of them, right? Part of what I'm trying to do in this beat growing up here in San Diego, and, and you probably hear it all the time when people, when you tell people that you're going to Tijuana, the first question, oh, is it safe? <laughs> We're hoping with our coverage here at KPBS to to give folks a more broad picture of what Tijuana is with with the Little League, with some of the real estate stuff. We covered Tijuana's moving tech sector as well. There's a credible amount of food, culture, arts, a a lot of positive things going on. Yeah, people moving there, there, people going to college there, as you've reported on. Yeah, exactly. It's a vibrant city of almost... Two million people at this point is bigger than, than than San Diego, and there is a lot of there's a lot happening over there that I think gets overlooked by a lot of other folks. And hopefully, here we're giving our audience a, a more broad and nuanced view of it. Well, I think we're in good hands with you at the helm here. I've been speaking with Gustavo Solis. He's an investigative border reporter with KPBS News. And Gustavo, always great to have you here on Roundtable. Oh, thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. When Roundtable returns, we'll hear about the state of craft beer in San Diego, and we'll get some beer recommendations for the holidays. Belgian ales are great with a variety of food. You kind of they have the lighter and the darker, but they have these great floral esters that just sink really well on the palate with a lot of different kinds of foods, especially uh, vegetables and fruits. Roundtable is back in less than two minutes. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. 
That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. What a year it's been for beer in San Diego. At the 2023 Great American Beer Festival earlier this year, five San Diego breweries took top prize this year. It's the nation's largest pro-brewing competition. Among the gold winners were Ballast Point, Belching Beaver, BNS Brewing and Distilling, East Village Brewing, and Taproom Beer. That list alone shows just how far-reaching the craft brew industry is in San Diego. But it hasn't been without its challenges this year. Joining us for a look back and ahead to the future of craft beer in San Diego is Brandon Hernandez. He's the founder of San Diego Beer News, and you can read his work over at sandiegobeer.news. Brandon, welcome back to Roundtable. Hey, it's great to be with you. Great to have you here. You know, so earlier this year, we had you on, and back then you were reporting on some multiple closures and some moves for local breweries. So now here we are, it's December. Like, has this become a trend for 2023? Closures has become a trend for the entire nation, so it's not just San Diego specific, but it's kind of uh, the aftermath of the pandemic. It's sort of a, a perfect storm, if you will, with uh, just rising cost of everything, inflation, a crowded marketplace, and then there's also alternative beverages that are turning people's heads and taking market share away from, away from beer. So uh, craft beer has always been pretty cyclical, but that's where we're at right now, and so uh, we're on the downswing, but that doesn't mean there's not a ton of quality beer, and that's always the good part. So like if we went back to January 1 of 2023, like is there a big difference from now to back in January? I would say that we're somewhere between a dozen to 20 venue closures. And with that comes um, somewhere around maybe seven to 10 brewing companies off the top of my head. But overall, we're still at well over 200 brewery venues that are open. So there's tons of beer out there. There's tons of breweries doing their thing. But a lot of pivoting and a lot of adjusting to the market. And so you just said there are about 200 different breweries, and I know there's a bunch of different, you know, brew pubs and places where people can obviously get the beer. Um, so we talked about ones that have maybe closed a little bit. What are some craft breweries that maybe have opened up this year or some businesses that have expanded? Well, some that have opened, uh, the first one to open this year is called Heritage Brewing and Barbecue. They're up in Oceanside and uh, on the Coast Highway. It's the uh, beer venture of a Michelin-recognized barbecue venture up in uh, San Juan Capistrano. Owners really into beer would come down to San Diego, mostly to Oceanside, and just drink all the great from all the great breweries that were there. And he's like, I want to get in on this. So he did. He opened a brew pub, and they're making their beer there. They took a uh, really seasoned veteran from Pizzaport Carlsbad and put him at the helm. And uh, funny enough, he not only does the brewing, but he also helps out with the barbecue and smoking of meat. So the guy is multi-talented, uh, really fantastic beers up there. And then there's a spot in uh, North Park that's called Brewery Igniter. It's a lease-to-brew spot where a lot of uh, breweries have started their operation and they uh, move on. It allows them to get in and lease a brewery and tasting room without having to go to the expense of constructing one or uh, buying all the stainless steel. Um, there's three suites there and two new spots opened up this year. One is called Barley and Sword, and it has a, a very old school thematic. 
And by old school, I mean old world. They are making beers unlike anybody else in the entire county. They're, they're not going for the IPAs. They're not going for the low-hanging fruit, if you will, that everybody else is making. They're making the historical styles. And they're, they're kind of reveling and educating people about that as well. Right next door is a place called Gold Brewing. It's an acronym for Get Out and Live. It is a... Uh, kind of the it brewery of the moment right now there's a lot of fervor for their beers they're making all sorts of things but they center around a lot of great ipas a lot of crushable lagers and then some really great decadent barrel aged and uh, also pastry stouts so a lot going on there but um they're one to watch for sure crushable lagers i like that and the barbecue and the beer sounds absolutely great so you know 2023 i think I, I can't remember when we talked earlier if there was like one beer that was like standing out or one different kind of beer you know we've heard about ipas being a big thing here all sorts of other things but what was it for 2023 like what was the it beer and i don't know any i know you don't have a crystal ball but what about 2024 well, I would say that there's never just one style, but the things that have been really popular this year is uh, something that's called a cold IPA, which is actually typically a, uh, a hoppy lager or a, or even a, uh, a hoppy ale that's lagered, which means a uh, lower temperature, longer fermentation period. People are really into those and they've gotten better over the years. This year, people were making very good cold IPAs, but then also people are still into Mexican lagers and these um, more kind of the American adjunct lager that you would see from a big company, but made on a thoughtful craft level. So um, they would be the ultimate crushable lager. And by crushable, it just means like you start it and you finish it quick, you enjoy it, you grab another one. It is what you have after the lawnmower session. So um, people are just really into drinkable beer right now that tastes like beer. That said, they're always into something fun, like a, a Imperial Stout aged in two different barrels with coconut and you know, this and that and that and the other thing. So it's still a wide ranging uh, style gamut out there. For 2024, I think we're going to see uh, more uh, more of these beer flavored beers as well, which I think is great. You know, as a beer fan, it's nice to see people experiment with IPAs and making hazy IPAs or fruited IPAs and things like that. But I like watching the pendulum swing back to kind of what got us there in the first place. Uh, just beer that tastes like beer is made very uh, exactingly and it's clean and it's crisp and it delivers a lot of flavors. There's no off flavors. It's well done. And uh, we can all just kind of get back to what made us fall in love with it so that we can then appreciate the experimentation afterwards. Mm, very well put. Let's talk about one of San Diego's oldest breweries. And it's a major one that a lot of people have heard of, Carl Strauss Brewing. What happened with them this year? There's some big changes there, right? Oh, definitely. Well, they're about to hit their 35th year in business. Um, they are the longest operating post-prohibition brewery here in San Diego. And the spot they opened in, in downtown, uh, their brew pub, they were finally able to own it. As of this year, they finally took that thing over. They've been leasing it for over 34 years, and uh, now it's all theirs, which is very cool. And at the same time as they were doing that, they were opening up a new spot, an outdoor beer garden in San Marcos called The Outpost. Very cool spot, tons of uh, space to roam, play games, chill out under some umbrellas, but you can also get their beer as well as some food out of the first uh, Carl Strauss branded food truck. So that's really nice too. They're opening up new states, Arizona, uh, Nevada. For the longest time, they were one of San Diego's largest by volume craft breweries, but they sold all of their product here in California, which made it even more impressive that they were as large as they were. So 
uh, they're able to grow while others are kind of uh, struggling, but that's all because they, you know, they've been around the block. They kept their heads through this uh, period and they're doing a really good job. And, you know, over on San Diego News, there's one regular feature that I really enjoy, and it's your beer of the week. And last month, for example, you highlighted Fall Brewing's Rocket from the Crypt, and that's a nod to San Diego punk band with the same name. Okay, I'm curious, Brandon, what makes a good beer of the week? And maybe the real question here is how much tasting goes involved in, you know, making that choice? Well, I do a lot of beer tasting. It's not necessarily for any particular reason, but uh, wait, I mean, it is research because I put it on the taxes. Um, (laughs) But seriously, uh, a lot of a lot of tasting goes into it. And I I do a lot of uh, getting around to the other breweries, often for the purpose of interviewing people and getting information. But um, also, I have a very open door policy with these beers. If somebody has something really excited that they're jazzed about, that typically means it's going to be pretty exceptional. No brewery is going to call me up and say, hey, I've got this really awesome beer I'm excited about, and then it's a dud. You know, so um, this uh, beer you're talking about, uh, this beer is called Rocket from the Crypt, is a great example. I mean, you've got a local tie-in. The beer is also exceptional, but it was brewed for for a gig they were having, and they wanted something that was a really great lager with a lot of flavor, and they made it for them. And um, I have to say it's one of the best lagers I had all year, but... Uh, a lot of times it'll be something for a special event or an anniversary beer or what have you. Sometimes it's even just a core beer you can pick up at the grocery store. But um, yeah, I, I try to uh, get out there and find what I can find that's really interesting. But I also want people to know that the best way that we can work together on something like this is for them to let me know when they've got something that they are just excited about. And almost always the drinkers are excited about them, too. And there was also one story that you wrote this year for San Diego Beer News that was a bit more personal, and it was where you told the story of how you came to slide down the rabbit hole, and we're talking about of craft beer, and who sort of helped introduce you to it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd actually love to. Um, uh, I lost a friend of mine. His name is Jason McGraw this year, but um, many years ago, 1998, before I had even had a beer. I didn't drink beer. I wasn't interested in beer. He was a coworker of mine and he invited me out to a place called O'Brien's in Kearney Mesa. It's still there. It's one of the longest running, uh, quote unquote, beer bars in San Diego. Uh, They had all the craft things that were not available anywhere else way back then. And so I show up and, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm here with a group of guys who know beer. And I'm just like, what's the coolest beer I can think of that I've seen in commercials? And I say, hey, can I have a Heineken? He's like, oh, my God, no, 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 no. And he just got me into beer and I mean, he changed my entire life. The entire trajectory of my career was changed by just his generosity. And I found that that generosity is a hallmark of the craft beer industry and community. People who like beer want other people to like it. They want to bring people into the party. And it's one of my favorite things about it. I, I really miss Jason, but I mean, to say that he left a mark on my life is a, a, a gross understatement. Absolutely. And, you know, beer and friendship, I could totally see that going hand in hand. But, you know, Brandon, we're approaching the holidays. We're just days away from Christmas, and then the new year is right around the corner. And, you know, a lot of people, they're probably going to be going to parties and, you know, maybe bringing some type of beverage. So here's my big question. If people want to impress their guests or their host, if they're going to a party, what should they bring? Or, like, what's, like, an iconic San Diego beer that is going to be unique? Well, I think they should go with a local Christmas beer. Uh, Christmas beer is an entire class category all its own incorporates flavors of the holidays in a lot of different ways, a lot of different styles. Uh, Santa's Little Helper is a classic Imperial Stout. Just fantastic. It's by Pizza Port. Get that in the can. It's great. Kilowatt and Kearney Mesa makes a Cleveland-style Christmas ale, 
uh, and a barrel-aged version of it. What it is is this really nice dark brown, almost garnet uh, reddish ale that has honey, ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, and it just tastes like the holidays. It tastes like uh, baked goods, if you will. Alesmith does something similar with something called Holiday Hero, another stout that has uh, chocolate and uh, vanilla in it, and it's 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 more kind of I don't know, like an ice creamy type deal. But then if you want to go not so much on the darker side, they have a cranberry ale as well, which, which is exactly what it sounds like. It tastes like cranberries, very delicious. And then the aforementioned Pure Project, they do a collaboration every year with Burgeon Beer Company, and it's a hazy double IPA called Home for the Holidays. Okay, so those are some beer suggestions, but I'm also curious, obviously a lot of people are going to be eating food over the holidays. Are there any tips you have for pairing beer with food? Or I mean, is it just like whatever people want to do? I always say drink what you like with what you like to eat. But <laughs> if you're really if you're really trying to sync these things up, I would say to kind of stay away from the hops because it's just not, you know, a lot of the things that we find appetizing, we're trained, we're hardwired as human beings to not go so much in the bitter direction when it comes to food. Therefore, there's not a lot of things that sink right up with those bitter hops. But if you go in the, the malty direction, say you get something that tastes like kind of roasty or toasted or have even items in them that are food items themselves, as I was talking about before, have things that have uh, baking spices or anything like that you'll probably be pretty happy. And also Belgian ales. Uh, Belgian ales are great with a variety of food. You kind of have, they have the lighter and the darker, but they have these great floral esters that just sink really well on the palate with a lot of different kinds of foods, especially uh, vegetables and fruits. Hmm. Yeah. And I feel like that's a trend that I've kind of noticed lately is just more, you know, fruity tasting beers. And I, I really like those ones. Okay. So as we wrap up here, Brandon, you know, we've been talking about some turnover in the industry in 2023, some closures. Looking ahead to 2024, what's your sense of the outlook for next year? Well, unfortunately, I do think we'll see some more closures. It's just the nature of the beast. Plus to say that we have a lot of breweries, again, another understatement there. Maybe we're not supposed to have as many as we do. I think the big thing right now is that some breweries are just a little too large. They were built to grow in an era when growing was the goal and when there was space to grow and a market in which to do so. So a lot of them are trying to do a new thing called growing down, where they're making their operations smaller so that they can manage in this new place where we're at and kind of tread water maybe until we get to the next environment where growth is encouraged and also possible. So I think we're going to see a lot of smaller operations open up or breweries become smaller and try to be a lot more community focused, be, be more about like what they were before they had dreams of growing, more about owning home, really being part of the San Diego community and having their part within it. Um, people are already doing that and they're seeing success with that. And some of the smallest places to open are doing the best because they're bringing beer to a very finite customer base who just love them. And there's, I kind of think that that's what craft beer was always supposed to be about and it just blew up. But re in reality, maybe it was supposed to be something that serviced the people right around you and you could, you know, put your arms around them and give them exactly what they want. And, um, I think that we're seeing success there and that could actually be a really good thing. I've been speaking with Brandon Hernandez from San Diego Beer News. You can read more of his work over at sandiegobeer.news. And Brandon, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for all the holiday tips here. Uh, thank you. Happy holidays and happy new year. 
Coming up next on Roundtable, The Roundup with producer Andrew Bracken. We'll hear about some other San Diego stories. Roundtable is back in less than two minutes. This is KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. It's now time for the Roundup. Producer Andrew Brackett is back with us. He's been compiling a list of some other San Diego stories that he's been watching and following. Andrew, what's up? Hey, Matt. Good to have you here again. So you get all your holiday shopping done? I think so. We're close. I'm close. Close. Well, we're days are ticking away. So, <laughs> no, but I'm working this week. Last week you said you needed expedited shipping. This week you're going to need overnight shipping. So. <laughs> right. Right. Good luck. All right. What do you got this week? Well, like you said, it's the holidays. The holiday travel rush is here. I think you did a story on this this week as well. The San Diego Airport Authority. They say Saturday, December 23rd, and the following Saturday, December 30th, are going to be the busiest travel days. But we're seeing rain this week and a lot of people traveling. So, you know, take your time getting to the airport. I think the airport authority also mentioned that they do provide a free electric shuttle from Old Town Station. It runs every 20, 30 minutes or so. Mm, that might be an easier option than trying to volley for parking down there because we know Terminal 1, that new terminal is under construction. Right. Uh, so they mentioned that. Um, but also a lot of people, I didn't realize this because I, I talked to AAA for that story. They estimate that like... 9.5 million people will travel, and that's in Southern California, but still just in Southern California. And the vast majority, like 8.3 million, will be by car. So be prepared. And there could be some showers, you know, throughout the new year. So, you know, drivers got to be careful out there. But I imagine, I always love, I don't know about you, but seeing that shot, like from KTLA or something of the LA freeway, and it's just gridlock. And they're I like, don't, here I don't it like is. seeing that because I'm probably going to be part of that at some point. Yeah, because you, you have to go up to LA. So yeah. you'll be part of it. All right, what else? Continuing on the holiday travel front, I don't know if you remember last year, but there was that major outages from Southwest Airlines that really disrupted millions of people's holiday travel in 2022, including some in the KPBS newsroom, I think. The U.S. Transportation Department has fined Southwest. They're going to be paying a fine of about $140 million for the disruptions from last holiday season. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty brutal, um, I know, for tons of people across the U.S. here in San Diego, California. But I remember I had my flight canceled. It was the day before uh, Christmas Eve. And so I had to rent a car uh, on the next day, Christmas Eve. And I drove up from San Diego to Sacramento, ended up getting it done. And I will say Southwest did cover the cost of the car and everything like that. So um, and they did refund the tickets and they gave bonus points or something. But uh, yeah, hopefully I don't have to go through that again this year. That's all I'm saying. Okay, what else? There's an update on the electric scooter company, Bird. It was the last one running in San Diego. I think they left the San Diego market last month. Well, they announced they're filing for bankruptcy. Mm. They're still running in, you know, over 300, I think it's like 350 cities around the world. But they're going to file for bankruptcy. Who knows what that means? If it's like restructuring or whatever. But 
Just seeing those ongoing issues with those electric scooters, they were once so popular, I think some of the added regulations, I wonder how that plays a role into... You you brought that up before on Roundup. Yeah, the city changed their rules and a lot of the companies ended up leaving and and Bird left in November. Yeah, and who knows if they'll be back because I remember when you did that story, you said it was like a winter snooze or something, like them leaving. Uh, So you got to wonder about that. But I know I... I've taken the birds here in San Diego. And when you do it, you can buy like a bulk, like whatever, like a $20 credit to you do the birds. I still have money on my account. So oh, well, do I get that back or what's the deal? I don't deal know there? how that's going to impact that. That's a good question. <laughs> Remains to be seen there. Okay, what else? Well, Fox 5 had a story on lobster season. It's underway. Lobster season in San Diego, it runs between October through March. But the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, it listed San Diego Bay as the second best place to catch lobster in California. Mm. And also around Carlsbad, that was also on the list at about 10th. The thing that always fascinates me about the lobster season here is the different lobsters. Because we have spiny lobsters off our coast, not the ones you get at Red Lobster with the claws. There's no claws on them. Um, And I remember I did a story a few years ago with a local company here up big company that they take in all these, it was like 99% of the lobsters that are caught in San Diego go overseas to China because it's like a delicacy and they pay a higher premium. And I remember we were searching everywhere to try to find a place that had, that sold spiny lobster and was somewhere up north, a seaside market, I believe it was. So just kind of interesting. Okay. What's next? You know, we're heading towards the end of the year and the Santee drive-in will be closing its doors. Its last day will be December 31st. It's been around since 1958, wow. and it's something that um, that I've gone to several times. And what I always appreciated about it is it definitely felt like you're going back to childhood. It's definitely like a kind of time machine feel. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is drive-in movie theaters are great when you have young, young children because it's you have your own space. Pile if a kid's the car, crying, they're yeah. not going to disturb anybody. <laughs> so we'll be missing the Santee Drive-In, though I have to say we haven't been there in a long time. Oh, well, maybe that's why it's closing. <laughs> right. um, but, yeah, no, I, I have not been to the Santee Drive-In, but been to many drive-ins up in Sacramento. Um, but, you know, I guess that's just the way things are going, streaming and everything. But it really is an experience to go to the drive-in. And I don't know about the Santee one, but there's ones they would, they would even still have the old speakers that you, like, hang over the car door you like roll oh, down wow. the window nowadays i think it's all done on the radio right yeah, yeah tune into like well of course we know everybody here's tune into 89.5 kpbs but you would change it and go on there so but i think isn't it gonna be housing or something they're gonna build there well i mean it makes sense and you mentioned the streaming services i think they pointed to that i'm sure the pandemic provided some challenges and yeah we know land is at a premium and that it's a big chunk of land there so i think it's being redeveloped though i'm not sure what's going to become of that land right now We'll have to stay tuned to see what comes of that. Okay, what else? The former San Diego Chargers, now in Los Angeles, as we know, they recently inducted a pretty popular player here in the 2000s, Antonio Gates, star tight end. And he was inducted into the Team Hall of Fame. He gave a speech in Los Angeles. You know, he did make reference to what I think what he called the second home of San Diego. Here's what he had to say. To the city of San Diego. You supported me. You embraced a 22-year-old kid from Detroit. And you will always be my second home. So you hear there really the passion, and I think that could be kind of a, a bittersweet thing for San Diegans to hear because they're not here anymore. But it really shows that bond still continues. And again, this, you know, that cheer happened in Los Angeles, not in San Diego. 
that's what I think is amazing about all this. I mean, he's in Los Angeles. Obviously, he's a San Diego great, loved by so many people that love the Chargers here. Um, obviously, he's never played in Los Angeles. But yeah, he gets brought up on the stage up there and he starts doing this speech where he's thanking everyone, thanking everyone, including the owners of the Chargers. And then he gets to this part where he says, and I want to thank San Diego. And the crowd, Rah! and I thought that was just amazing because then he, he thanks LA too, but nothing. So it also makes you wonder like, you know, I think a lot of people wonder, like, would people just give up on the Chargers when they went up there? And, you know, you see Antonio Gates get this crazy reception when he calls out San Diego. I mean, those have to be San Diegans that are that are doing that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely have spoken with people who didn't know how to treat the Chargers once they left, but then ultimately came back to rooting for them. But, you know, it's been, what, over five years now since they left, and there's still these these ties to that franchise that aren't going to go away, it seems like. And it was so cool to see Antonio Gates thanking San Diegans. Uh, just very, very cool. Okay, what else? This last one's a little different. It's a little more difficult, and it has to do with an upcoming change here in the KPBS newsroom and for us here on Roundtable. There are going to be some changes here on Roundtable. Uh, it's with a heavy heart that uh, I announced that I am uh, leaving KPBS. Words can't express just how thankful I am to KPBS I started here as a student, you won't believe this, but 10 years ago this month, I mean, I can't believe it's been a decade, but while I was in college, graduating college, they gave me all the opportunities I could ever ask for uh, in terms of, you know, being a reporter, being a host, being a fill-in anchor. I'm so forever grateful, and there's way too many names of people here to thank who are gone, who are still here, who have helped me along the way. Um, and I also just want to give a big shout out uh, to the audience, to those of you who tuned in on Roundtable every week. Uh, to those of you who watch the TV show, who listen, who read our stories online, you know, it's very special to be part of a uh, of a station that's member-driven, member-based. And, uh, you know, you guys out there are great. You guys give us lots of story tips. You're never afraid to let us know when we might be, you know, doing something uh, <laughs> a little bit off. And we appreciate those. And it's just, it's really been a wild ride. And uh, 10 years down is, is a long way. And I've had a lot of fun on the show, Roundtable. I mean, it's great working with you, Rebecca, our technical producer, and I'm just really going to miss you guys. I mean, there's just no there's just no getting around that. It's been a very emotional week for me. Yeah, and I think the same goes for everyone in the KPBS newsroom. When this news came out, I remember one of our editors, Gina Diamante, kind of sharing some of her memories of you, and particularly wanting to mention, you, you became a health reporter during the pandemic, during the coronavirus pandemic, which, you know, as we've discussed is probably like the biggest health story in our lifetimes by far. Absolutely. Um, and she even mentioned that you covered that there was like a first plane that arrived with COVID-19 patients really, really, really early on. You covered that story. I think they arrived at Miramar. Yeah, from Wuhan, China. Yeah, yeah. That was before it was the pandemic was even going anywhere. It was when it was just in China. Uh, and, and they came over and there was a lot of confusion. And yeah, it's, it's really been a wild ride. I mean, from general assignment reporter to taking over as health um, during the pandemic. And uh, it just, it, it always amazes me. There's so many great people in San Diego, just just to know that they would trust you to tell their story, sometimes very heavy stories, mm -hmm. sometimes fun stories. But uh, it really means a lot for the people out there because we, we wouldn't be able to tell such great stories without you guys trusting in us and welcoming us with open arms into your homes to tell your personal stories um, or maybe talk about something that you see as wrong. You guys really make the news work and we are just uh, conveyors of the message. And uh, I'll definitely miss KPBS and miss everybody here and, and miss the audience. I think same goes. We're going to miss you too, Matt. And thank you so much for being a part of KPBS all these years. 
All right, we're going to try to close this out here. Get a little bit emotional, but Andrew, always great to have you here on the Roundup and great working with you, man. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been great working with you. That's going to round out Roundtable for this week. And for me, one final time, we always appreciate you being here. As always, if you missed any part of our show, go ahead and check out the KPBS Roundtable podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our show airs on KPBS FM at noon on Fridays and again on Sunday at 6 a.m. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken. Rebecca Chacon is our technical producer, and I'm your host, Matt Hoffman, signing off for one final time. I will say, though, the show is in good hands. Expect to hear a little bit more of Andrew Bracken as he takes over here on Roundtable. Thanks again for listening and for all the memories over the years. Have a great weekend and a happy holidays. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.